Good gracious. All right, let's get our Bibles out and open to Acts chapter 18. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you can grab that black hardbound Bible in front of you and turn to page 1278. You'll find Acts 18. Now, we are preaching our way through the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 18. And like I told you last week, a lot of people look at chapter 18 as a transitional uh, section in Acts. A lot of people, when they're preaching through the book of Acts, will skip over uh, chapter 18 and just go to chapter 19. And uh, boy, I don't know why they would do that. What a blessing this chapter has been in my life for the last several weeks, and I'm looking forward to what God wants to say to us this morning from it. It's been such an encouragement and such a blessing. Now, what I want to do is pray and ask God to help us as we study as we look at His Word, as we recognize that it's perfect, inerrant, and able to transform us and renew our minds, our greatest earthly possession is the Scripture. We're so grateful and so thankful. Apart from salvation, nothing could be more meaningful in our lives than the gospel in our hands. So let's pray and thank God for it. Father, we thank You that You've allowed us to be here this morning in Your goodness and in Your provision, in Your sovereignty. You've orchestrated all things according to your will and purpose. And so here we are, face to face with your word. We pray that you'd use it in our lives to minister to us, to tra transform us and change us, Lord. God, we all need to hear from you this morning. And we pray that you would speak clearly. Lord, I pray that you would push me aside and that you would, through the power of your spirit, use your word that you might accomplish in our lives what only you can do. Lord, give us ears to hear, that we might respond rightly to your voice. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So, as we've been following the life of Paul over the last several months together, uh, you know, we've seen how God's been using him to do incredible things. And there could be a tendency in us to read the book of Acts and to, to see the things that God is doing with the Apostle Paul and then to come to the conclusion that maybe Paul has some supernatural faith, that what's happening in, in Paul is beyond the capacity of any mortal person to be able to experience. And uh, the reality is, is that there are many things going on in the book of Acts that are only for this transitional period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're not things that have been done before or will be done again. But when we look at the Apostle Paul, we have to recognize that he's just a man. He's just a person like we are. And he has faith that we can have. And there's so much to be seen when we when we follow him and he's going from city to city and he's teaching the gospel and he's making disciples and he's planting churches and all of these things are happening. And what we don't need to do is disconnect ourselves and think, you know, that we're reading the story about somebody who's doing something that we could never do or participate in. But it hasn't come easy to Paul. And we really got to see his humanity last week and the challenges that he's facing and the persecution that came against him and 
every single city he visited. But whether it's the beatings or the imprisonment or being stoned and left for dead, whatever came his way, he was relentlessly committed to the mission of Jesus. And so we want to look beneath the grand narrative of what's happening this morning. And we want to see what it is that God wants to show us and teach us through the life of Paul. We have details about these personal interactions and these personal situations going on with Paul. And the question is, why do we have that? They don't seem to connect necessarily to any of the things that God is doing uh, in these cities or the planting of these churches necessarily, but they're details given to us for some reason. And as I've studied this over the last month, I've just been so moved by the story within the story, if you will. You know, we're watching the gospel sweep across the earth, and it's doing so exactly as Jesus said that it would. You remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen, is that exact Prophecy being played out right before our eyes. But we've also seen some practical things. Some things that have challenged us personally in our own lives. Things that decisions that Paul makes and the ways in which he sort of navigates in and through these circumstances and situations. So what we want to do this morning is ask God to grant us some divine clarity because that's what it's going to take. I understand, because I know you, I know me, I understand that it's an uphill battle this morning. The conversation we're going to have is a conversation that uh, is common to all of us, and one that is one of the most common struggles that we face. And honestly, I do not believe it's possible to overestimate the importance of these truths that we'll see in these passages. And so let's begin by just, if you can get your listening guide out, let's lay out a few premises to build upon. The first one is this. The reality is, I mean, that we just, Lifeway just published their latest uh, massive uh, research project. It's called the Pathway Project, and they've been working on it for a long time. And in this particular study, they were studying evangelical Christians, uh, people who profess to know and love Jesus and people who attend church on a regular basis. And of those people, only a third of them responding even said that they engage with the Scripture, that they read their Bible on a daily or regular basis. Now, that didn't shock me, but it did sadden me. Because I know that to be the case, yet I hope and pray that it will change. And then when I see things like that, I'm reminded that it hasn't. And the reality is, is 
that most people are never powered by purpose. Most people are never powered by purpose. They're powered by other things. Their lives find their thrust from other things. Most people, in my opinion, are powered in our culture by acceptance. Now, you may think that most people are powered by materialism or powered by success or powered by some other, uh, some other thing that you might put in there. But I would say that all of those are driven by acceptance. Most people's lives today revolve around being accepted. We all want to know that we're okay. None of us want to be rejected. But Lord, it ought not be the thing that drives our life. You wouldn't have to know me very well or be around me very long to know that there's a handful of passages that I believe are just pivotal to success in the Christian life. They, they have been to me, uh, and I have relentlessly uh, pressed these truths into the lives of the people that I love and am responsible for, and they all know these verses by heart because they've heard them thousands of times. They're written on the walls in my house. They're, and I'm constantly, constantly referring to them. And one of them is Proverbs 13, 20. That verse says that he who walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. That truth, I believe, is... So incredibly important. And here's why. Because when you begin to dive into why is it that so few people live lives that are powered by purpose? What is derailing so many people? What is deceiving so many people into living their life for acceptance? That in the end will amount to nothing and achieve absolutely nothing. Well, I think that the, the key to unlocking that is the truth that is embedded in Proverbs 13, 20. You see, purpose has a price. This is why so few are powered by it. Because it has a price. You can't just, it's easy to say that you believe something. It's, it's easy of the people who were uh, who the, the tens of thousands of people who responded to LifeWay's research, they almost unilaterally agreed that the Bible is God's Word. Yet the very same people don't read it. Now ask yourself, how is that possible? And clearly... Something is amiss. You don't actually believe that it's God's Word and not read it. You've just intellectually come to a place where 
You belong to a group that believes that. But you don't actually believe that and not read it. It would be like me saying that I love my wife, but I don't speak to her. Be the same thing. It'd be ridiculous. It wouldn't make any sense. But purpose has a price, and evidently it's a price. Either one of two things is true. Either people are unwilling to pay the price to live a life of purpose, or they're uncertain of how to effectively pay that price. Now, I can't do anything about the first one, but I can address the second one. The hope is, is that if there's a de desire in your heart to live a life of purpose, if God spurs you this morning to great change, then we'll be sure through His Word that you're equipped with how to pay the price and be successful in moving forward, powered by purpose. So in order to do this, we're going to have to go back about a month. A month ago, we were in Acts chapter 15, and we actually, Pastor Matt preached a sermon on the text about Paul and John Mark. You remember that? Conviction or compromise? Acts chapter 15, these verses will come up on the screen, verse 36 and following. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. But Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed. Now at that moment in time, prior to the division over John Mark, Paul and Barnabas were co-pastors at the most powerful church in the world, the church at Antioch, the church that was launching and sending uh, missionaries and, and the catalyst church for birthing the gospel across the world. And this one singular person who appears out of nowhere, that in this moment, if, if we didn't have the rest of Scripture, we'd be saying, who are we talking about? Causes these two men to separate. And what was the problem with John Mark? Most of you remember that sermon. But back on Paul's first missionary journey, Mark, in the midst of the mission, abandoned them. He quit. He didn't see through the mission at hand. He wasn't committed to the mission and Paul was unwilling to take him with him. Why? Well, because he hadn't changed. And Paul said, that's not going to happen. Barnabas, on the other hand, 
wanted to give him another chance, wanted to continue forward. And what you know as you continue to read is that in the, in the moment, it almost seems like Paul's being a little harsh and Barnabas is the one who's being graceful and more like a Christian. But as you continue to read, you find out that in fact, we don't hear anything. Nothing about Barnabas and John Mark. As far as we know, God didn't do anything through them. But he did an extraordinary work, which is what we've spent the last month studying, through Paul and Silas and the work that Paul's doing. And so clearly, Paul made the right move. So we see Paul separating from someone who's not committed to the mission. But then last week, as we moved into chapter 18, we see Paul discouraged and down. We see the same person that was so confident and so sure that uh, not only he needed to stay committed to the mission, but he needed to have the right people around him. And then we walk into chapter 18, and he is low and fearful. And remember last week, what we found is, is that he, he was in Athens by himself, that he had sent Silas and Timothy, his two compadres, he had sent them to go check on the churches in Macedonia, Thessalonica, and to check on them and to see how they're doing. And so they're gone, going from Thessalonica to Berea to Philippi. Paul's alone. In the city of Athens, he ends up standing before the Areopagus, this ruling body, very intimidating uh, yet glorious opportunity. And he stands there by himself proclaiming the word of the Lord. But it's the same old broken record and he's persecuted and he's run out of town. And it's his own people, the Jews, that are uh, causing all the problems for him. And so he's, he's so down that the Lord says to him in a vision, chapter 18, verse 9, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. So we know that he was definitely struggling and wavering and really hurting. And then the Lord said, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city, and God encourages him and picks him up. But we need to understand that Paul who made a definitive step to clear someone out of his life, then becomes discouraged because he's alone and he doesn't have anybody with him. That even the great apostle Paul can't go it alone. And so we're reminded of the point of our time together last week where we were created to be connected. That's who we are. That's God's intention. That will always be God's intention for your life. That will always be something you need to be mindful of. That as we're learning from Paul how to be powered by purpose and how to stay focused on the mission, one of the things we have to do is watch how he navigated his personal life and the things that he learned in the midst of the challenges that he faced. Being alone is not good. But what's also not good is just allowing anybody into our lives. Because the companion of fools is destroyed. 
And what always strikes me about Proverbs 13, 20 is the reality that it doesn't say that the companion of fools becomes foolish, which is always the response that I get when I talk to somebody about foolish people in their life. They always respond to me by saying, well, I'm not going to do the things that they do. And I say, I didn't say that you would become foolish. The Bible didn't say that you would become foolish. The Bible says you will be destroyed. That's two very different things. Amen? And so we need to understand. And so we, on one hand, we're created to be connected, but on the other hand, we can't, clearly just can't allow anyone into our lives. Because what would have happened had Paul allowed John Mark to go with him Who knows? It would have been a catastrophe. But he didn't. He did what was right. So the question is, what kind of people do we surround ourselves with that will propel us forward in our purpose, that will keep us on mission and on task? And here's the the real practical reality of this. Where do you find them? How How do you identify them? How do you deal with, because we all have varying degrees of messiness in this conversation. Some of you have lives riddled with foolish people. And what you need to do is clean house. Some of you have some people in your life that are uh, helping you and propelling you forward. And you have other people in your life that you're not really sure about. And you have been... Uh, languishing and dealing with. And even after the message a month ago, you're still unclear because you're not exactly sure what's the right thing to do. You, you continually find yourself siding with Barnabas and wanting to wait it out. Well, I want you to think with me for a second this morning about Paul. And how did Paul learn these things? When we get to chapter 18, Paul's been a believer for about 20, 21 years, something like that. But half of that time has been in intensive discipleship. Only half of his time as a believer has been out in practical ministry. And as the Spirit of God was ministering to him early on in the wilderness... And the years he was spent being taught, he evidently learned some things. And who did he learn those things from? Well, he learned them from from God. He learned them through the Spirit of God. So then what we need to do is say, well, what does Jesus do? You see, when Jesus calls his disciples... Has it ever struck you as strange that at 30 years of life with family, brothers, sisters, friendships, relationships, neighbors, no doubt, who knows how many friends he had and for how long he had had them, and yet when he 
when he inaugurates his ministry and he goes out to identify those who will be his followers, those who he will invest three years of his life with, he will, he will put the most precious, intensive time of all the time that he is on earth into these 12 individuals. None of them are his relatives or close friends. Why is that? And doesn't that seem strange to you? Wouldn't it make more sense that Jesus would walk up to someone who he, the Bible would say, who he's known all of his life, who he's identified over the years, over the decades, as somebody who's good and faithful and solid and trustworthy, and Jesus would walk up to them and say, follow me? But that's not what happens. Jesus had a family. Jesus had people who were close to him. Jesus had a network around him prior to the inauguration of his earthly ministry. And what of them? What does the Bible tell us about them? Mark chapter 6. Remember in Mark chapter 6, this will come up on the screen. This is the passage when Jesus goes back home. And here's what the Bible says. Then he went out from there and he came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. Verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which has been given to him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are his sisters not here with us? So they were offended at him. So when Jesus begins to minister, his family is not only not on his side, they're against him. If you're here this morning and you identify with that and you have family and people very close to you that don't support you, take heart, neither did Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus says, But he said to them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and with his own people in his own home. Mm. What about Luke chapter 4? It records how they responded that day to his teaching in the synagogue. Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 4.28, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built. That they might throw him down over the cliff. My goodness, the hostility. And so many times when Jesus was in trouble, I asked myself the question. Where are his brothers? They're invisible. What brothers are not there when one of them is in need? And since we're talking about a person who never sinned, then what is it that he could have perpetrated against them that was so bad? Well, nothing. And yet they're nowhere to be found. In Mark chapter 3, 
Verse 21, the Bible says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. They were determined that he was insane. In John chapter 7, the Bible says this, After these things, Jesus walked into Galilee, for he did not want to walk into Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now it was the Jews' feast of the tabernacles that was at hand. Verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea. Now did you catch that? He didn't want to go to Judea. Why? Because he knew that there were people there who wanted to kill him. Everyone knew that. His brothers, his own flesh and blood said, Depart from here and go to Judea. For your disciples also may seek the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. That's way past not supporting. Now, rather than belabor... The degree to which his family mistreated him. Let's look at how Jesus responded to that. Let's look at all the things that he didn't do that I find myself surrounded with people that feel like it is the thing to do in this situation. First of all, I think you should note that he didn't try to control his family's behavior. He didn't do that. You notice the only time he responded back was just acknowledging the fact that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own hometown. But he never shot back or fired back or tried to control their behavior. But nor did he let their behavior control his. Amen? That's an amen right there. He didn't let them control his behavior. He didn't demand that they agree with him. He didn't do that. He didn't sulk when they insulted him. He didn't make his mission. He didn't alter his plan, his purpose in order to please them. Amen. He didn't do that. Each of us, if we're not careful, we live in fantasy land, believing that our family or those closest to us are always going to respond to us as we live for the glory of God like an episode of the Waltons. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. This expectation that those who we maybe have invested the most time and energy in are always going to be there for us when we need them. We, we deceive ourselves into thinking that, oh no, you know, I've, I can count on them. They're always going to be there for me. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I just want you to know that Jesus didn't have that expectation. And if he didn't have that expectation, I'm not sure we should. In Luke chapter 8, 
Here's what the Bible says, verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. So now we see this sort of last push. This, and this is a very pivotal passage in understanding the way Jesus dealt with this scenario. Jesus is surrounded by people. He's in a house teaching. It's packed. And so verse 20 says that the Lord was told, they passed through the crowd, hey, tell Jesus, tell Jesus, tell Jesus. And so finally it was told to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now notice exactly what Jesus says. Verse 21, but he answered them and said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That is the defining passage to bring freedom into your life, to allow you to experience the truth of Proverbs 13, 20, to surround yourself with people and live your life powered by purpose and accomplish the mission for which you've been created. That verse right there. You want to know practically how to address the situations in your personal life so that you can be effective for the kingdom of God, so that you're not looking back with regret, but you're looking forward with hope and anticipation of all that God's going to use you to do. You want to know how to do that? It's to understand the truth right there in Luke chapter 8. You see, according to Jesus, who clearly didn't grow up in the South, our closest relationships should be based on mission. That is what Jesus is telling us in Luke chapter 8. In the way that same scenario is in the book of Matthew and it's in the book of Mark. And every time it's the exact same. Jesus deals with his family the exact same way. What he's declaring is, is simple. He said, my mother and my brother are those who hear the will of God and do it. That those closest to me, whether you want to define them as your family or your closest friends or whatever it is. It's those whom you do life with. It's those in your inner circle. It's those who have the most influence upon you. It's those whom you spend the most time and quality uh, effort with. Those people, those relationships should be defined by mission. Mission. This is the cost that no one seems to be willing to pay. I can see, look at you, if you could see what I could see right now. The shock, the horror, the catastrophe of what I'm saying. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying exactly what Jesus is saying. People in your life not committed to mission need to go. That's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter who they are. They need to go. Because there's something more important 
than those relationships. Now, what's this going to look like tomorrow? Or today? This is where Paul learned this. He learned it from Jesus. Now, listen, understand something. This is not in any way an indication that Jesus saw all relationships as a utilitarian model. What I mean by that is Jesus didn't see relationships only for what they were useful for. No, no. It, a lot of you are struggling with this because this is how you think. But you're wrong. Because listen, the same Jesus that said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That same Jesus in John 13 said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Does that sound utilitarian? No, it does not. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus was deeply emotionally invested in the relationships to those whom were close to him. He loved deeply. But he also loved wisely. He didn't love Blindly. He would never violate the principles of Proverbs 13, 20. Do you know what is the most powerful source of intimacy and unity in a human life? The most powerful. The what breeds the deepest, most abiding relationships between human beings on earth, according to Scripture. Have you ever thought about that? Well, if you had, you would say, you would ask the Bible that question. You would say, what does the Bible say about that? And I would say to you that it is crystal clear because in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays to the father before he goes to the cross he opens up his heart before us and lets us listen in as he shares his heart with his father and I want you to notice how these two unbelievable ginormous realities are intertwined together in what he says in John 17, this is what the Bible says, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, what is that a declaration of? Mission. That is the mission. Jesus is, is merely 
confirming the fact that there is a mission. It's the great commission. It's the purpose for which I came. It is the most important thing that I'm leaving behind is my words that you go and make disciples of all nations. That's what this is all about. And so he declares to the Father as he's praying that these that he has poured into are going to be people who are powered by purpose and accomplishing the mission. And then... There's a semicolon. And on the other side of the semicolon, the Bible says that they may be one. And not just one, not just anyone. He's not saying that they might be close, they might be tight, they might, that's not, they might be Facebook friends. Oh, no, that's not what he's saying. He says that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He's saying that in the mission, we have the potential to grow close in a Trinitarian way as the Father and the Son were close. That the closest relationships that can ever exist on earth are those bound around the mission of God. So when Jesus, when his brothers didn't share his convictions, he didn't try to force them to. He recognized what we should recognize, and that is that if God is sovereign and he's good, he'll provide for us what we need. He'll put around us those whom we need. He'll give us an opportunity. He's not going to leave us or hang us out to dry. So if we're created for connection, then this good, sovereign God is going to put people in our path as gifts for us to create in and around us a spiritual family that will more than. My personal testimony is that this spiritual family at this fellowship is so far exceedingly abundantly more than I could have ever asked or think and beyond the capacity of my earthly family could have never, could never in a million years mean to me what my spiritual family has meant to me. So if Jesus himself wouldn't force those closest to him to share his convictions, then what on earth would make us think that we can? But why so oftentimes there is a contingency of people present in this room right now and either the reason why you're in the mess that you're in right now, so devoid of purpose, of a life powered by purpose, is because you've allowed in the past the distractions of continually trying to convince people that you felt ought to in some way, shape, or form agree with you or be on mission with you or identify with you. And so you labored over and over and months turned into years. It turned into decades. And it's yielded nothing. Or you're right now, right now, allowing people to suck the zeal right out of you. I call them sucker fishes. They're always trying to stick to me. I'm slinging them things off me all the time. 
Needy, needy, needy. Don't grow, don't change, stay the same, got to go. There's too much work to do. There's too much mission to accomplish. We're not talking about evangelism. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what Jesus did, what he showed Paul to do, and why the Bible is telling us this. Listen, we can't control the way people respond to us. We never have been able to, and we never will be able to. We just can't. So when it comes to the way other people behave towards us, it is what it is, right? Yes. So what we need to do is we have to move beyond the naive expectation that if we do good, people will treat us right. Come on. We don't live in Mayberry anymore. The fact of the matter is, is that the people in our lives may or may not come around. But we don't have any control over that. See, here's what happens. Let me just get real practical here with you for a second. What happens is we get emotionally invested in relationships. Because we, oftentimes, the most difficult are the ones we're born into. And so we feel obligated like it has to somehow sort out. It has to somehow work out. And so in that context, what happens is, right there, once you take that step, you have already put yourself in a position you were never intended to be in. Never. Because let me explain something to you. You and I have never and will never, ever, ever, ever in the history of the world, ever, ever change anyone. We're not the change agent. We don't change anything or anyone. God changes people. But when we step off into, I've got to keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. Wait a second. I put myself in a position where only God belongs. That's God's place. I've shared with you before about how uh, my wife's journey growing up as a preacher's kid and you know, always swearing she would never, ever, ever, ever marry a pastor. And trust me, she married the right guy to fulfill that. <laughs> it just didn't quite work out that way. But it looked like the odds are you have definitely got the winner for that. But there was a season... Where my mother-in-law and my father-in-law found themselves with wayward children. And it was agonizing and it was 
brutal and it was heartbreaking and many of us know what that feels like. And I always go back to, I, I can still remember the first time that my mother-in-law shared with me the story of the grief and the heartache and the pain and all that. And your kids are just completely out in the wilderness and their whole life they were brought up in church and they were just taught and raised for so much more. Now she could have never known that it, it was only in the wilderness that she could have married me. She couldn't have known that. But she no doubt found herself in that position of trying to just do everything in her power to change them, to fix the situation. You know, how many nights can you cry yourself to sleep? How many days can you spend four, five, six hours on your knees begging God to move and change and work? And how many times can you go and you go and you go? But then one day, just prompted by the Spirit of God, my mother-in-law took out a piece of paper and she wrote on that piece of paper the names of her children and she said, God, these are your children. They're not my children. Before I knew them, you, were, you knew them. You were responsible for them. They belong to you and you're the only one that can change them. And she folded it up and she put it in her purse. And she carried that piece of paper around in her purse for years and when her children came back and began to live for God she gave all the glory and honor to him because she knew it wasn't her but we're so quick to put ourselves in a position that we were never meant to be in now, what happens is when we get ourselves in that position, we're, listen, we're playing a game with unfair rules. You can't win. You understand that? You'll never win. It only finishes fatally. Jesus never played that game, nor should we. It's strange how countercultural what I'm saying is to us, isn't it? The enemy has gotten such a foothold, has relegated so many people who possess the power of eternity within them to squander their opportunity to change the world eternally because they're floundering in these relational situations now Jesus didn't do any of those things he stood back and things did change because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 if you remember way back when we were in Acts chapter 1 here's what the Bible says then they returned to Jerusalem to the mount called Olivet which was near Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And after they entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. 
And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Notice what it says at the end. With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Things changed. After the crucifixion, things changed. After Calvary, things changed. But how practically, I want to be as clear as I can possibly be. How could we succinctly and practically put the way Jesus handled these relationships so that you can walk out of here today feeling empowered with exactly what you need to do? This is the way he did it. Jesus gave his family space, time, and grace. Those three things. Space, time, and grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what is space? Space is defining boundaries. So space is what Pastor Matt talked about a month ago with John Mark, that we need boundaries. And so space is you establish boundaries in your life with dysfunctional relationships, and you tell people, listen, this is the boundary, okay? And you got to abide by this boundary because I'm not playing this game anymore because I have a mission that I'm living, and I'm not going to allow you to stand in the way. I'm not going to allow you to stop me. Now, why do we need time? We always need time. Always. Notice this didn't happen. in. G this is Jesus we're talking about. Like it's not like they're sitting around talking about all the mean things that Jesus did to them. It's Jesus. Like with me and you, there's tons of things they can say about us, right? That would all be true. But with Jesus, and it still wasn't immediate. It still took time. In your life and my life, it's always going to take time. Why? Because people need time to know the boundaries are for real. When you first establish boundaries with unhealthy people, are they going to just go, oh, well, thank you very much. I got that. I'll be sure to do that. Well, of course they're not. So every time they come and cross the line, you got to hit the button so they get shocked. So they go back. So they learn over time. I'm not changing. I'm serious about this. I'm committed to living for the glory of God, and you are welcome to be a part of that, but you're, you, you're going to have to do that in a healthy way. Time. And then grace. And what is grace? How did we define grace a month ago when we were talking about John Mark? Grace is for those who, what's the word? Change. Why is it so quiet in here? What happens to people who don't change? Is it not the goodness and kindness of God that, that calls people to repentance? What is repentance? Change. What happens to people who don't change? What happens to people who don't repent? Is there grace for them? Well, okay, so what's grace for? People who what? Change. So you're... So this is why this is so important. The question, please, please hear this. The question is not, are they going to change? That's the question we're hung up on. That's the wrong question. I don't know if they're going to change. You don't know if they're going to change. What difference does it make if they're going to change? That's between them and God. 
right? So that's the wrong question. Don't ask that question. The question is, am I going to be faithful to the mission? That's the question. And if I am, then I communicate. Listen, the door is always open. Grace is always available to anyone willing to change. But if there's no change, there's no grace. Amen. Doesn't matter who they are. Now look at Acts 18. And let's finish all this up. Because with all that, you can see so clearly what God is doing in Paul's life. Acts 18, beginning in verse 18, look. Where we left off last week. So Paul, having come off this time of discouragement, and, and God provided friends who care, right? And fruit to bear, and fellowship to share. Okay, so Paul, still remaining a good while, a year and a half, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. But he didn't leave alone. Look at what happened. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. He had his hair cut off. Now, you know you're big time important when you get a haircut and it's recorded in Scripture. <laughs> I mean, all, I'm, all week I'm going, seriously? All I could think about is all the times my wife got a haircut and I failed to notice. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is telling me that Paul got a haircut and I have to notice that. But the truth of the matter is, is that it was because he took a vow, a Nazarite vow. And so coming out of this difficult time that he was in in Athens and certainly the debauchery that he was exposed to in Corinth, he purified and cleansed himself by taking a Nazarite vow. Usually those would have been a 30-day, 60-day vow where he wouldn't have cut his hair. And so at the end of that, he would have shaved all his hair off, and then he would have taken the hair that he shaved off his head, bound it together, and taken it to the temple and thrown it into the fire as a sacrificial offering unto the Lord. That's the reason why that's there. But anyway, verse 19. So he takes Pr Pr Priscilla and Aquila with him. Then he comes to Ephesus. And then this is amazing to me. And he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So notice now what the exact thing that's been causing him all the pain and frustration is going back in. Remember, remember what he said in Corinth? He just shook all the dust off him and said, you know, there's no blood on my hands. I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Isn't that what he said? But see how his relationship with good people has put him back on mission. It's healed him. It's mended him. And so what does he do? He goes to Ephesus. He goes right back into the synagogue. And he reasons with the Jews. And they asked him to stay there longer with them. But he did not. Why? Well, because he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. Well, he had that hair that he needed to go to Jerusalem to uh, lay up on the altar. So he was headed there. But I will return to you, God willing. And so he sails from Ephesus. So Paul takes these two people with him, goes to Ephesus, clearly has been healed by these relationships and is back on mission, back on track, fueled to move ahead. 
And we also know that Silas and Timothy were around because they showed up in Corinth and brought him the offering from the churches in Macedonia. So they were around. And Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months, so plenty of time for him to grow this deep abiding relationship with Priscilla and Aquila. Now notice what he does. The Bible just sort of happened to mention that when he leaves Ephesus, he leaves them there. Huh. Which is telling us much more about these two people than it is about Paul. We know, we know that Paul is illustrating to us what a person who's utterly committed to mission looks like, powered by purpose. But we can learn a ton about the people that he brought close into his life. Clearly, this was a relationship driven by mission. Why did Priscilla and Aquila end up in Corinth in the first place? The Bible said because, see, they were from Rome. They had a thriving business in Rome, but they were expelled because all the Jews were thrown out of Rome. So these two people were just suddenly expelled from their home, uprooted from everything that they knew, transmitted over into a new culture, new society, new everything. They meet Paul. They're in a, in a, in a season of disarray. They meet Paul, spend 18 months together, grow this close abiding relationship. They were already believers in Jesus. And then they go, you know what? We'll move again. Amen. That's big. We'll move again. Not, man, we've been through so much. Why don't you take somebody who? We just got settled here. Take somebody else. You know, it's their turn to get uprooted. It's a, not them. They go, we'll do it again. We've been through it once. Instead of sitting around saying, look at how hard it's been for us. And how. They're so committed to the mission. They go, we'll do it. This couple becomes Paul's lifelong friends. They are mentioned numerous times throughout the Scripture, over and over from this point forward. And they grew to mean so much to Paul. They were his teammates in ministry. Really, it's the most significant married couple in the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 16, here's what the Bible says. That the churches of Asia greet you, Paul says. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. They're so committed, the church is meeting in their house. Then we see later, after Corinth, after Ephesus, they end up back in Rome. And they come up again in Romans chapter 16. And look at what Paul says. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all. Do you see that word? All the churches of the Gentiles. What an amazing... What, what if something like that could be said of one of us? that all the churches of the Gentiles would give thanks for these people because they were so motivated by mission. But it's a price few are willing to pay. I'm pleading 
with you this morning. To listen to what the Spirit of God is saying in your heart. You have but one life to live. You have but one opportunity to give it. Give it. Whatever is hindering you from living your life on mission. What is sucking the life out of you? What is it that is consuming your time? When you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking about? What are the problems that are continually eating away at you? My guess is, for most people in this room, there are dysfunctional relationships at the core of the answer to every one of those questions. And they're sucking the life and the joy right out of you. And evil wins. Because what God intended for you is now neutered and dormant. One last point. Let's talk about joy for a second. You would think that in the most affluent nation the world has ever known, in the history of human civilization, there has never been a people that enjoyed the luxury and the freedom that we do. And yet, where's the joy? Where's the joy? Why are there so many pouty faces? Why are there so many? Why do we lead the world by miles and miles and miles? And prescription drugs that help us cope. We're surrounded by the lap of luxury. There's not a people on earth, not a church on earth, that can come into a building like this with no fear and total freedom like you can. And where's the joy? We ought to be the most joy-filled people that have ever existed. Joy ought to be the abiding, significant trait of our lives. But it's not. And I'm going to tell you why it's not. And I'm going to tell you why it never will be until this situation is addressed. Because you will never be filled with joy until you live the life God created you to live. That is the only place where joy exists. And so here's the principle that we need to just, we need to say this 
out loud to ourselves however many times it takes until we receive it as absolute truth. And that is, God made me to be a disciple maker. He made me. He made me. From the foundation of the world, as he was knitting me together in my mother's womb, as he knew me before, he knew my days before there were any, he was making me and every single person who's ever received salvation to be a disciple maker. I don't mean after salvation, because of course that's true, I mean before salvation. I mean, you were always intended to be a disciple maker. You were made to be that. You can tell me until you're blue in the face about how you can't do that because you don't know enough. To which I say, well, are you saved? And if you say yes, I say, well, then you know something because you can't be saved if you don't know something. So whatever you know is enough to get you saved. So why aren't you telling other people what you know so they can get saved? Right? Okay, now here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8. An all-knowing God says, for whom he foreknew. You see, the day you got saved, God didn't go, whoo, I didn't see that coming. Lord, that caught me off guard. They didn't have to huddle up as a trinity and go, what are we going to do now? Tony just got saved. Like, oh, Lord, what's going to happen now? That's not what happened. He always knew. You didn't surprise him. He didn't force you to do it. You responded to him, but he knew you would. And it says that those he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed into the image of his son. Which means every person who's ever come to faith in Jesus has been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And the image of his son is a disciple-making machine. Now, how are you going to weasel out of that one? There'll never be joy. Go ahead. You don't believe me? Live your life for acceptance. Give the best of yourself to your job. Run around and look for pleasure and joy and contentment. Go ahead. You will fail. You will be empty and you will be broken. You will not find it because it does not exist. Joy can only be found at the right hand of the Father it's the only place. And he made you to be a disciple maker. So you can do anything A to Z you want to do. But if you're not making disciples, you're not doing what you were made to be doing. Period. You can do a lot of good things. You can do a lot of things that other people think are amazing and wonderful. But if it's not disciple making, if it's not propping up, building up in some way, shape, or form contributing to the making of disciples, it is an utter waste of time. And it will never yield joy. Okay. One more scripture for you. 
What about Matthew chapter 4? You all know this passage. Jesus said, follow me, and it's possible that you could become a fisher of men. Follow me, and maybe, remarkably, just maybe you'll achieve the level of disciple-making. Follow me, and if you do everything right, and if you, if you follow according to all the things that I say, you could potentially, within you, become a fisher of men. Or did Jesus say, if you follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. That's what he said. It's your purpose. It's your mission. That's where joy is. That's what gets me out of bed every day. That's what I think of every time one of you says to me, Pastor, I don't know how you do it. How do you handle all these people, all these problems, all these struggles, all these every, you know, every time you turn around? It's not easy. But let me tell you something. My joy is found in my purpose. I'm on mission. Every day of my life, I am on a mission. To make disciples at home, across the street, and around the world. That's my mission. I build relationships for discipleship. I do the things I do for discipleship. I think the way I think for discipleship. I try to, I try to bring discipleship into every scenario in my life. It's discipleship. Because that's what matters most in the world. It doesn't always work, and it's not always easy, but let me tell you something. My heart is so filled with joy when I see people that have taken the gospel that's been poured into them, and they hear it, and they do it. That's my family. That's my family. They're the people closest to me. They should be the people closest to you. You got to surround yourself with people who are on mission. And then walk in what and who God made you to be. Our greatest purpose, our greatest purpose is achieved when our deepest connections revolve around our Father's mission. Lord, let it be true for us.